I mean, dogma itself doesn't necessarily have to be religion. It's essentially a set of beliefs that is widely accepted by members of a group without any real evidence or proof that's being required. And they can be regarding principles, systems, rulings, uh, tenets of a religion, or it can be philosophical positions such as you know, Marxism, capitalism, neoliberalism, etc. Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. When it comes to examining institutions of authority, speculative fiction is a goldmine. Author Quilla McBreen joins the podcast today to talk about dogma, and we have a pretty open discussion about the roles and impacts of authority, including religion, government, and social constructs. Quilla McBreen, thank you for joining me on Speculative Sandbox. Uh, I've got to admit, I was a little nervous heading into our topic today, which is dogma. Um, but I'm really excited to to hear more from you and to talk about this some more because I feel like the presence of religious institutions in fiction can be really, really interesting. So can you please introduce yourself and your projects for our listeners? Of course, yes. So thank you very much, Vicky. It's it's great to be here. I'm Colin McBreen, author of The Tenets of Truth, which, as you might realize by the title, is quite religious, really, or has quite a basis in dogma and religion. Uh, it's a fantasy fiction uh, book, part of a, a series of at least four books I'm, I've been writing, and was released last year in October 2020. Actually, in October 2021, so yeah, it, was, it, was, it had its birthday last year in, in October. Congratulations. Happy birthday to your book. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I completely forgot I was a terrible father to my book. I, I forgot that the, the, the birthday had passed. So <laughs> I had a belated birthday for it. Um, so, yeah, we, we've come on today to talk about dogma and, and the use of dogma, especially as a control mechanism within within fantasy fiction, mm -hmm. which... I mean, dogma itself doesn't necessarily have to be religion. It's essentially a set of beliefs that is widely accepted by members of a group without any real evidence or proof that's being required. And they can be regarding principles, systems, rulings, uh, tenets of a religion, or it can be philosophical positions such as you know, Marxism, capitalism, neoliberalism, etc. So, I mean, what I find incredibly interesting about the subject is how universal it is. So no matter of time or place within a society, it will have been guided at some point, ruled, dictated by dogma. And as the definition shows earlier, that, that doesn't necessarily have to be religious dogma. That's but fascinating. Guess, because a lot, of, a lot of traditional fantasy places itself in historical and post-enlightenment era. So that period was heavily dominated by the church. And the image that we have in our minds is normally the Dark Ages, inquisition people being tortured and burned for heresy so maybe we shouldn't be surprised that by the wicked that be surprised by the wicked overbearing church trope that crops up so often in fantasy fiction yeah and what we what we also see in fantasy fiction is a focus on individuals who are magic users often bestowed upon by some form of deity or derived from the creator spirit or universe etc so this is usually at odds with the institutions of the state who are seen as impotent in terms of magical ability so they oh, tend wow. to be more, so a magic system can be dogmatic exactly yes and, and also it by that sense of impotence that's created in a ruling or, a, or you know a religious sect can cause them to grasp at tradition and, and force a stronger imposition of their rules and laws and stricture in a bid to control the strength and spread of the magic use so this is where we often see the use of dogma as a tool to enforce the will of the ruling classes so that they don't ultimately lose the control that they've already had. 
Yes. And and that's why like I found dogma to be such an intimidating topic because it does force you through this conversation to kind of face some uncomfortable truths, especially when you're examining some of your own belief systems or a community or social norms that you come to realize is could be quite dogmatic. Um, so yeah, yeah I'm, I, I, I think so, and I think we see that in a lot of books that use dogma, and you know, and, and yes, they use religious dogma as a way of self-reflection, maybe. And I think it's not necessarily always the the attack on the church that we might think or the attack of the, the established systems that we might think but maybe it's a way for people to explore and, and and see where they sit within the world and see what the world has available for them i know when i read or write or, or you know daydream it's a lot of that it's about me processing the world that's around me and, and you know the situations i find myself in so I think that's what it helps us to do is not necessarily dictate to us to say, right, okay, I've written the tenets of truth and in that tenets of truth there is a, a nasty evil church. That's not necessarily my belief of the world. It's just actually it was a tool that when I first set out writing the tenets of truth, I remember reading Child 44 by Tom Rob Smith and I was fascinated by his use of the Soviet state as an overbearing, almost physical presence. It was you know, a personification of, of authoritarianism. The threat of the state was all encompassing and pervasive. And I, I found that such a visceral threat. I wanted to build upon the use of the state as a clerical and position to create that shadow that covered the land, watching jealously for any signs that their control might be slipping. But after centuries of, of the status quo being held within my world, at least, we start to see the cracks of ambition creeping in. Both the priesthood and the ruling house lords are enviously eyeing up the control that each other have and that's where we get the conflict that ultimately shapes the world and that's them imposing dogma not because of religious scripture etc but it's because of fear of the loss of control what is it about control regardless of the form of dogma whether it's government religion even your social groups what is it why are we so obsessed with control well it i suppose people are always people people like the status quo People like what they currently have. You never want to lose what you have. You only want to gain more than what you currently have. So I think that's part of, well, that's part of the human condition, really, isn't it? You never really want to go back to somewhere that you used to be where you didn't have as much as you do now. So I think the the use of control or the use of dogma as control mechanism is that the people who control, who are in those positions of power, don't want to lose that power and that's it they just don't want to lose what they have they always think that they need to to at least keep what they have mm -hmm. and by gaining more then there's a possibility that you can lose because you know we all understand you can't keep what you have forever but if you if you've got a lot more than what you your base point then you've got a lot more that you can lose before you get back to that base point it's fascinating. Okay, so Quillen, before we continue, I feel like I need to initiate you properly with uh, what I've been doing with all the guests this season, which um, I want to give you some rapid fire warm up questions. You, you ready to play okay. that game for quickly and then we'll go on to the, the rest of the topic? Of course, yes. Let's go. Okay. So these rapid fire warm ups are just a fun way for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. And some of them are completely unrelated to the topic and some of them are. And now that the our listeners have had a chance to kind of understand what dogma means and what context we're going to be talking about today, I'll start with the ones that have nothing to do with it. So the first question I have for you is, do you prefer coffee or tea? I'm drinking coffee right now. Okay. It's, what kind of coffee? Very hot. I like it hot. Um, I have one decaf. Oh, sorry. I have one caffeinated coffee in the morning and the rest is decaf. And at the moment, I am treating myself to some oat milk. Ooh, very, very nice. Okay. Um, a a pre-question. Have you seen Star Wars? I, of course I've seen okay. Star Wars. Yeah. I feel like I have to ask that. You never know. Okay, if you had to remove a character from the original trilogy, who would it be? Oh, wow. Um, from the original trilogy, who would I move, remove? Can I remove a whole bunch of people because I just they never I, I never really I just found them I'm not a cute kind of person I don't like cutesy things oh. so I'm getting rid of the Ewoks. Okay, <laughs> you know I think that 
probably would have been a big conversation at the time that it was released, right? Weren't people like <laughs> hating on the Ewoks? <laughs> I just, uh, I know that a lot of people will change and think, no, no, they, we have to keep the Ewoks. But to me, they were just too cute. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, gotcha. All right. This is more speculative, more sci-fi. Do you think we'll ever get to a future where stories are downloaded? Let me say that again. Do you think we'll ever get to a future where stories are downloaded directly into our brains so that we live the characters' experiences? First POV. Yeah. Uh, I I think I think completely. I always imagined that you know the way when we're born and our our skull hasn't properly formed yet, so there's a Mm -hmm. gap down the middle. It's a great point that we can insert a, a. microchip that sits within the central cortex and actually forms part of the brain cortex and synapses so the the brain synapses actually grow around this central this central chip that will connect us into the biosphere wow because i wouldn't mind if it was completely regulated and safe if i was like all right i'm gonna go watch i don't know the avengers and i'm gonna plug in and i'm gonna be like i'm gonna be black widow today and just you know, disappear into my brain and live that entire experience vicariously through technology and then unplug and be like, okay, back to my normal day. Imagine how just fantastic it would be. You have all that access. It's like having, it's like you are part of, you know, the, the hive mind completely, but you don't have to have the requirements of sitting at a desk or sitting with your phone or, or interfacing with anything, except you could actually just interface because it's already incorporated into your mind. Yes. So then we have to worry about things like hackers, right? Because then hacker, like hackers hack everything and they'll, they'll hack your brain. And now, now I've introduced the conflict and, yeah. and the risks. So, well, okay. I, I, I have this fear anyway. So once I have my microchip that's sitting in my head, I wake up in the morning and I'm still tired because during the night, somebody breaks into my, hacks my brain chip and has me doing all kinds of computations that leaves me feeling tired. So I don't actually get the relaxation that I need. <sighs> That's how you could control an entire group of people, like to completely yeah. disable them in that way so that when they're functioning, they're not at their yeah, best. They're just, they're just mining Bitcoins overnight for you. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. On to the more topic related uh, questions. What is the scariest institution, religious or dogmatic that you've seen in fiction? Uh, wow. Um, I suppose there's so many, but I, I really think you could have the Magisterium from the Northern Lights. Uh, you could have, it's it's actually probably the idea of, of Child 44 by Tom Rob Smith, which is the state, the Soviet state in his books are just so all-encompassing and they, they, it's just so dark and and devious, and you know, it talks about the torture systems and, and things. It's, 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 you know, a very, very scary place to be in this book. Interesting. Okay, I have to check that out. I was thinking about this question because the one belief system that freaked me out was the drowned god in Game of Thrones, in the book. Mm-hmm. So like the way that you are baptized and you become one of the high priests or whatever of the drowned God is you have to be drowned. You're held under the water and you, you full on drown. It's not your safe baptism that you might, you know, dunk in and come out, but you need to be out and dead practically. And then they revive you. And only after you've been revived, can you be considered properly baptized? And so there's a character running around that is incredibly judgmental of everybody else. He considers himself a a devout follower of the drowned God. And he keeps telling people that they need to be properly baptized, which is just a way of saying he wants to like drown you. And that to me seemed terrifying to me. Well, I, I think it's actually everybody really has to be, as you say, it, it, it's not just to be invested into the church. I think to be invested into the church has to happen more than once. It's, it's a few times. But actually, I can see, yes, it's a terrifying practice in itself. Um, but we also see Rallor, the God of Light, he also has a, he doesn't necessarily require his followers to die. But there are people that die and he can, be, he can use his magic to bring them back. But the Drowned God, in itself it's trying it's trying to create an independence 
or, or representing independence within Game of Thrones. So the Ironborn feel very separate to the rest, rest of Westeros. Mm -hmm. And they really should have kept themselves to their own island, really, because they, they don't do well in the long, long run. Not many people do in Game of Thrones, I suppose. But um, it's used really to legitimize a strong sense of independence of those people. It's like them saying, we don't really care what other people think and what other religions there are, but we're going to stick with the drowned god, who's one of the really old gods. Um, it's, it, yes, it's really brutal and hard as a religion, but then so is the environment with which the Iron Men live. You know, the, there's a, a part where it says the, the drowned god had made them to reeve and rape, to carve out kingdoms and write their names in fire and blood and song. You know, it's a dogma that they use to weed out those people in the community that won't make it. You live and die by the sea, which is a tempestuous and jealous lover, as keen to toss you to the rocks as it is to provide for you. It can give you life, but it can as easily kill you if the weather changes. And no one really has the time to train a new sailor to replace one that won't, won't make it. So it's, it's creating a strong sense of independence, but it's creating a strong community to live in the Iron Islands, which is a really harsh environment. Yeah. Well, the fact that like your introduction into this community, this religion is an extreme act of violence and that you're, you're reborn through that definitely kind of yeah. reflects that lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's just mimicking, it's mimicking the, the harshness of it. And then this, and also the, the structure of their society is as harsh, you know, it's mm -hmm. very dismissive of people. If you're weak, you're weak, they'll get rid of you. You have to always constantly test yourself, be, pay the iron price for things. You know, you have to fight for everything in the world and, and they're getting you, ready, getting you ready for that. In communities where there's religious presence, so you have, like for the United States, for example, there's supposed to be a separation of church and state. But when you talk about how, in the case of the drowned God, you have a religious practice that reflects the people of the community. Can you ever truly separate those two things? Or are, is one always going to affect the other? I think I think it will always affect the other. Uh, we're the same in the UK. We're supposed to have a separate legislature to to um, the priesthood, but we also have members of the priesthood that is automatically invested into the House of Lords, which is our upper chamber in our in our parliamentary system. So they are they automatically made lords. So it's a little bit of a strange one for us. Whilst we're supposed to be separated, there is a group of people within our, our, our overarching kind of Senate that can affect or implement um, changes or block changes to our legislation. So no, I, I really don't. I, I think when you have a society and a culture that's based upon one of these one of the, you know a religious group it will always always influence and always have some kind of uh, bearing upon it i mean when you look at it most of most communities have the rule of law based loosely or upon the some of the central tenets to the religion to which they purport mm -hmm. yeah that's true but, you know and it's very good in lots, in lots of ways it's 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 intimidating and hard in America where you have freedoms of religions, but you have this majority, like heavy weighted one particular religion, what makes it hard if you don't follow that religion or you observe a different one to feel yeah. inclusive. Agreed. Or if you, or if you sway from the ideal of that church or you lose faith with that church uh, and question whether or not that church or that religion is, it should be the, the central tenet to the, the rest of society, then it can be very intimidating and people then focus on you and say, no, you're not right. You're not in the, oh, yeah. you're not, you're not immediate in the alienation. Mm, exactly. Exactly. It's um, a hard place to be, I guess. I'd like to go back to game of Thrones. Cause just cause I felt like there, as when it comes to the fictional example of dogma, there's such a wide variety of things to look at. And a lot of it's based off of real world events so mm -hmm. um what i have is and let me know if i missed anything we have the old gods of the forest the faith of the seven the drowned god and then the lord of light that's right yes the law the lord of the lord of light the heart of fire the god of flame and shadow all all the very exciting stuff in in, 
in the Lord of Light there. Um, but you also have the, the many-faced god. The many-faced god. Which is essentially right. death. Ah. Okay. So starting with the Faith of the Seven, because I feel like that's like the primary one in King's Landing and just like the general uh, the leadership and everything seemed to be following the faith of the seven, the father, the mother, the warrior, the smith, the maiden, the crone, and the stranger, which make me mm. think when I heard that, I thought, oh, Greek myth characteristics. But then when I was doing research on it, it's based off of medieval Catholic church and they have priests, high septon, silent sisters, holy brothers and sisters, and faith militant. So what are your thoughts on how the faith of the seven was used to kind of explore the Catholic church? Well, Game of Thrones in general is a really good example of how they use dogma to control and, and to legitimize. We see it as in dogma in several different forms. We've got societal dogma, we have religious dogma, we have the control of, through superstition, control through fear and intimidation, we have control through religion, ceremonial control. You also have uh, dogma as a way of protecting the status quo, and there's also dogma as a way of isolating from external forces and fighting power for the individual. So they have the whole gamut, really. Um, the faith of the seven and the high sparrow is, uh, you know, it's a religion of the educated and the elite, the elite. It uses reason and the written word and the tradition of staged ceremony, which is really important to control the population. It's also the religion that the elite used to give them legitimacy to their claim to the throne. It has the shine and sparkle of a modern religion. It's also the only religion, surprisingly, in the book or the books that, that doesn't really convey or use any magical powers, per se. Mm. Um, all the others seem to have some kind of mysticism involved or some kind of magic that, that's related to it to some degree. Um, but I think maybe that's because it's the it's the religion of the state, and as such, it's used to more as a control mechanism than any of the others. It definitely looks down upon the other religions and treats them with much more contempt. It thinks that it's the more evolved religion. Um, it uses the offer of freedom from the wretchedness of paganism and dark superstitions to to draw followers to it. Uh, there's a point where they say, you know, the savage Northmen worship who worship trees and wolves. So it's very you know, disparaging of the others, um, but it has the power of the elite behind it. Um, although you know, once we see the High Sparrow coming into play later on, then it, it changes and he, he sees the Church of the Seven as being the real power, not, not necessarily the, the ruling classes themselves. So it is very much where we say before with that, that when we're talking about the separation between state and the church and within this period or this this kind of religious section within it it's very much blurred and they both kind of legitimize each other one can't really exist without the other although they seem to think that they can um, and, um yeah so look, we, we, when we see with most dogmatic control we see examples of how the few control the many through the use of you know the widely accepted beliefs that are either aren't challenged or can't be challenged yet for a while at least the high sparrow is seen to question and challenge some of those held beliefs but that's because he sees the uh, church of the seven as being at that time co-opted by the ruling classes mm. which is most often the other way around so again Cersei gets things back under control later on when she she blames enemies for her enemies for killing the faithful and then turns what is at the time a general war throughout the the, the seven kingdoms into a religious war when you mentioned how a lot like these religions can't exist without each other, you meant like the effect, like like the other religions, right? Not the the seven entities. No, I think no, I think that the I think the Church of the Seven and the 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 ruling elite within Westeros at the time, so the king and the aristocracy, they can't really exist separately. They legitimize mm. each other. So the the church uses the idea of uh, of, of the king being the main sponsor for the church they use that as well therefore it must be the right church interesting see and i was thinking religions if, if a religion is basing itself off of being the right religion if it's if it's a compared religion right we're better than this then they can't exist without the other religions because it's like the idea of can you be a hero without an enemy yeah, that, that's very true. That is very true. And 
that we see with the the Church of the Seven, they they, as you rightly point out, they they need the other church, the other religions, to be there because they need to be seen to be better than those religions all the way. And they're very, you know, they they say that throughout the books, they say how much they are above and beyond the other religions, and they, they are very disparaging of them. So they. I mean, we we see that through the elite, we see that through the churchmen, but we see you know a number of times when the ruling classes, the Tyrian, for example, will make fun of the beliefs of the old gods and how the you know they they believe in is it grumpkins and snarks. You know, it's all this. It's all based on the superstitions of paganism, mm-hmm. really, and that oral tradition of paganism. It's seen as the Church of the Seven is the modern church. It's based on ceremonial rule. It has the traditions. It has rites and rituals. It's um, it's the one that it's glitzy for the time, but it's modern. It's forward thinking. It bases itself on books. It has modern writing. It has churches, whereas the old gods, you can just go and pray to them in the woods. You pray to them by a tree. Mm-hmm. So. That's all very old world, dark ages. We're much more enlightened. So it's part. It's kind of looking back towards the dark ages um, and pre-Reformation, pre-Enlightenment period. And then the Church of the Seven is actually no. We've now we've moved on. We've we've enveloped or embraced modern science. We see the world for what it is. We understand it because we're clever. The rest of you are all just you know, country bumpkins. So then in the case of the drowned God, we talked about that already as like being a reflection of their society, but does that God imitate any real world belief systems? Baptism. <laughs> we have that. Yeah, well, there's that yeah, baptism isn't I suppose baptism isn't necessarily you literally die and you're that. reborn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose. Uh, but I suppose actually it is a reflection of a violent act. So being born in itself is a re- is a is a violent act, isn't it? So, mm-hmm. so maybe yeah, maybe it is uh, taking that to the most extreme that that he could. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and I, I suppose, I suppose again, it's probably baptism in terms of the old versions of baptism is it's it's not looking at baptism as as we see it now portrayed in, in modern churches but it's looking at dark ages and and how brutal life was then so let's talk about the lord of light i'm my memory is not the best i've done many things between when i watched game of thrones or the books and today um so i might need some reminding but the lord of the, the lord of light to me felt like it was like a weapon held over someone's head as like a promise or something that's to come. Um, Completely. Yeah. Okay. No, he was it, the Lord of Light. Is, it's the new, flashy, much more demanding, but can give much more back. Very modern and cutting edge. Really, just goes for it. It's the sexy side of magic and religion. Really, it offers a vision of the future, grabs you by the hand, and drags you towards the light. But it brings with it its own superstition, and and it directs and controls with shock and awe and some really really impressive magic you know, we see the re- red priestess giving birth to a shadow demon seeing the future in flames bringing beric dondarrion back to life multiple times bringing Jon snow back to life um so who, who isn't going to follow a religion that can do all that for you it, it almost seems like the it... jesus christ like removing that from the faith of the seven and it's like bringing things back to life yeah, idea. exactly. It, it really does, and it. And I think that's what Game of Thrones does, isn't it? It really it, it it ramps everything up to a much higher higher level than we would see those kind of things when we reflect it upon our own society and we think, oh yeah, so we have that model within our own religion system or our own belief systems somewhere. However, he then intensifies it and adds on the next little bit of sex and and danger and 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 those kind of things to to make it much more interesting and much more powerful within within the written word um because it also calls for really terrible sacrifice you know when we see the red priestess trying who's trying to control and coerce stannis and she forces him to make that hard choice between power and love uh 
it's her use of that religious dogma to control him and, and Stannis chooses power when he sacrifices his daughter to the flame mm -hmm. to further legitimize his claim to power and he even says that late in the in the books where he, there's a point where he says I know little and care less of gods but the red priestess has power and he just wants to tap into that power to legitimize his claim to the throne uh, which is shocking when you think he would go as far as to say right well we're going to kill my daughter. Yeah. No, it's the whole idea of like a jealous God because they don't, in these entities, referencing these entities, they don't want to share you. They want your devotion, you, like whether or not you're going to be, be used later as a tool for them. But it's a really interesting, the idea of dogma, how it can like actually lead to separation um, to pull you away from other, like the way that you have the otherness of the faith of the seven targeting the old gods. There's always this otherness. They don't want to share you with anything else. Yeah, and that's kind of reflected in some other books, isn't it? Oh, well, it's actually it's reflected in, I suppose, when we look at Norse mythology or we look at uh, American Gods by Neil Gaiman and we see that we have all of the, the you know, pantheon of gods across all the different religions and they've kind of been forgotten about. So because they have been forgotten about it, they lose their power because they need the prayers, they need that constant reaffirmment, a constant reassurance from the people, and that's where they derive their strength is from the people praying to them and believing in them. And once they stop believing in them, then they dwindle away into nothing, which is, mm -hmm. you know, we see that, don't we, in so many different religions that have fallen by the wayside. We see Druidic lifestyles, we see all of those pagan gods, we see the, the naturalistic elemental gods, uh, and, and obviously the, the Norse gods and, and you know, the, those kind of mythologies, the Greek gods, as we were saying, they've all fallen into ancient history now. People don't necessarily pray to them as, 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 a, as an ongoing religion. We don't see churches built to them or mosques or synagogues. So they are forgotten and in the background. They're just spoken of in, in texts. Fascinating. It's it, When you put it that way, it's like these entities are codependent they need you that's it. that's it and then we see we see odin in american gods on wednesday who is trying to create a situation that will have dire effects and force everybody to to believe him again and so we can regain power so that's the it's back to that jealousy and I, I think that's what a lot of norse mythology does the the gods are very fickle they don't really care <laughs> apart from the fact that they need to have your belief in them. Yeah, they I feel need like you to believe in them for them to gain the power. These gods, these particularly oppressive gods, seem to be a reflection of our worst selves. Yes, like, they're a mirror held up to ourselves, aren't they? But I mean that is that the question is that the is that what we do to create these gods or are the gods what or do the gods create us? So do we create the gods or the gods create us? And that's the point, isn't it? We mm -hmm. either have a faith system where we just say, nope, I believe that God is God and God created the world and, and the universe, et cetera, or the, you know, the creator or whichever, whichever God you choose to, to pray to. Or do we think, well, actually, we didn't understand how the world was turning or how the sun came up. So we started to anthropomorphize those things and explain it in the image of ourselves and create a sun god. Mm hmm. Yeah, I well, always think like it comes from ourselves. And so we, we're limited by our experiences. So what we know is what will get projected. Yeah, exactly. Or God created us all in, the, in their image. Mm. So it's, it, it's, it, that's, that's dogma, though, isn't it? It doesn't have to be, doesn't actually have to be provable or proven. It's just uh it's just something that is widely accepted by a member of a group without real, any real evidence or proof. And in fact, sometimes trying to gain the evidence or proof is the very way that you push the idea of faith away. And that's, you know, that it's, it's deliberately created so that the more you try to get the idea of it is the less you'll actually see of it. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the many faced God is death. Can you explain that a little bit? Why does death have so many faces? Because death is anything and anyone. So everybody comes to death at any point. Um, death will reveal, reveal himself or herself 
to any individual at any one point in their life. Um, and we see that in uh, in the Game of Thrones where those people who have died can then, they, they almost given themselves to the many-faced God. And the many-faced God can be anybody that he, he wants to be or, or she wants to be by assuming the identity of those people that have already died. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's because that's, that's the one I think also because death isn't particular to any one religion. So it's not just a Catholic thing. It's not just a Hindu thing. It's not just an Islamic thing. Death happens within all religions. So I think that's one of the reflections in the book is it is many faced. It's separate from all the other religions. It doesn't necessarily sit, sit within them as a, as a, you know, a, a, a level beneath the belief structure. And it sits separate as actually it's many faced. It can interface with, with anybody else. And that's where we see in Arya as she is searching for who she is and how she can regain control for herself, really, and gain independence for herself. Um, she's searching for what she can pin that upon and, and it's kind of it's an interesting idea if she finds her identity in somewhere something that has no identity. It's completely devoid of, of any identity because it would be anybody and anything at any one time. Interesting. I, I also like to think of it as, um, you know, how when people pass and it's difficult to look at them after they've passed, whether it's like an open casket or if you have to identify them, it's just really difficult because the person you see there isn't the same person you know. It's almost like they're like, it's it's just not the same person. I like to think that death now owns that face or like now when you think of them, it's a memory. It's like a, it's like a soul, not necessarily like an, an actual physical thing anymore because what you see is no longer that person. That, that face has been claimed by death yeah, and that that makes sense, and it kind of, you know, Arya uh, talks about herself as a ghost once she kind of finds the the many face God, or once she finds the the faceless man Jagannagar, and she you know she talks about him, she talks about him by saying, Jagan made me brave again. He made me a ghost instead of a mouse, because she feels that she had reduced down to a, a, a fearful, timid little creature, but. In him and through you know his connection to the many-faced God, whose death he was going to help her, you know, gain vengeance against all these people that she sees as wronging her and her family, that she has gained some more control of herself and some more of an identity. But what is interesting is that her identity isn't necessarily the identity of herself; it's the identity of this spirit, a ghost, rather than something that that was. The girl, the ten-year-old girl, yeah, ten-year-old girl that she was at the time. So mm. that person is almost lost, just like her dog is lost, or mm. a, 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 a werewolf is lost. Oh, that always so, breaks my heart. Wolf. The dire wolves, yes. Well, okay, so that was Game of Thrones, which I felt was such a great model to start with. But what other fiction examples did you want to discuss as far as dogma goes? Wow, I mean, there are so so many, and um, you know, it's rich. It's such a rich topic. I, I think it's especially in fantasy fiction. You can't really, well, any fiction, but you can't really have fantasy fiction without having some form of dogma. It seems, uh, but there's so many. You hardly have to search it all to find forms of dogma and, and religious control. I mean, take Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan. It's often argued that there's no religion in Wheel of Time, but there is plenty of dogma, certainly. And Jordan presents a, a world where ostensibly it's, it's our world, just many ages moved on from where we are now. Our world is, you know, a distant memory somewhere within the turning of the wheel. But for the age in which the book is set, structured religion isn't really needed anymore because the source of the one power, you know, the creator and the dark one and the wheel of time itself have all been proven. And we can see that in the breaking of the world and the White Tower and all the Aes Sedai that can use and wield the One Power. So churches as such in that kind of structure of, of religious society aren't really needed anymore. Yet we still see dogmatic control within that. And often it takes the form of strictly enforced societal norms and, and traditions and other types of institutions that will crop up to take the place of the church. We've got 
the White Tower who enforce obedience and control to a degree through not only the use of the one power, but from the three oaths. So they they de derive power from you know the use of the sanctity of these oaths to make them appear the most trustworthy. Um, but they also use them to twist and control people in positions of power. And, and they use their own power to legitimize power of the rulers throughout the land. And so they kind of become, as we were saying before, we, they, they're inseparable from those who are in r the ruling positions, uh, which is you know, a really clever <laughs> way to do it. They become symbiotic with the ruling classes. So they therefore are also in a way ruling, but from a distance. They don't have to do any of the really dirty work of being a king or a queen, but they're always in the ear of them. Um, then we've got the children of the light who use fear and intimidation and militaristic dogma as control. Um, but all the time that's a link to superstition and the idea of the one true power being linked to the dark one, very much like the inquisitorial uh, trope that we see in many fantasy fiction stories. Uh, that we were talking before about, you know, the, the, the pre-enlightenment era in the Dark Ages. Um, and, and again, uh, similarly, we, we have the cult of the prophet within the book who coerces his followers by strong association with the dragon reborn and, and the rules and conditions that he makes are enforced by superstitions that he has. And then there's even the, the empress, may she live forever, who has undertones of the Stalinist early Soviet era that we era that we were talking about before, like in the in game sorry, in child forty four. And that gives us a really good dose of societal dogma using you know, strict structures of society, tradition and superstitious control, the fear of Marastamani mixed with a reliable threat of force to control and subdue the population. And she does the same thing with the ruling classes too. So even the blood are subject to highly enforced social Darwinism, where it's expected that they will fight between themselves to ensure that only the strongest, most cunning and wily of them will survive to continue the line. Wow. And we have questioners and listeners amongst the Sonschan just to round off that idea of secret police that could be listening uh, to anyone that says the wrong thing at the, any wrong, at the wrong time uh, and even be disciplined. Uh, dobbed in by the, the, the person who lives next door to them. So it's really it's really dark and really clever the way that they do it with it or the way that Robert Jordan does that. Um that so what conditions I had a conversation with someone a couple months ago where they 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 talked about the theory that you could start society over by grabbing all the nicest, sweetest, talented, skilled, whatever people and make a colony and that over the next few generations something bad will still come out of it. Because if you like, if you didn't have a power-hungry sociopath moved into that colony, one will eventually be born, and then you'll find yourself in the same situation where everyone starts controlling and monitoring and all that stuff. Do you agree with that theory, or what? What do you think are the conditions well, that allow for this to happen? I think it is the human condition in terms of that idea that somebody will therefore be born at some point who will have those those ideals. But I think what would happen probably before that would be within the society of all the good, you know, bright, the intelligent, etc. All those, all those wonderful things that you've decided to use to set up this society, that there will be such a fear of the person who's being born, who's going to disrupt all of this, that actually you'll start to embed controls and dogma before that even happens that actually starts to cripple the society in itself. So I think by trying to negate it, you actually in, in, instill it within society. So I, I, I think that's completely true. I don't think you could actually get away with it. I think it would create itself through the fear of creating of it, creating it, of it being created accidentally later on. It's like that, I forgot which king, Greek god king, he received a a prophecy that his son would kill him so he got rid of his son or whatever and his son yeah. ended up growing up somewhere else is it oedipus i don't remember it is oedipus, and, yeah, yeah. yeah ends up accidentally killing him anyway <laughs> yeah it's uh it's pretty pretty hard that one isn't it? There's, there's a lot of things that happen in that people having to claw their own eyes out because of what they've done and what they've seen there's 
you know, yeah, there's, there's, I mean, there's reasons we we call it the Oedipus complex, isn't it? So it's not good. <laughs> don't go, don't go and read this one, anybody, please. <laughs> not, not and expect not to have some nightmares or some issues. So we've talked about the scary sides of dogma, but is there like what are the good sides? What what are some positive outcomes that come out of this? Oh well, um. I think I think the thing about dogma is that there, as we just said before, there needs to be an idea of rule and law because otherwise we would just have anarchy. So, and I don't think at any point any any system ever starts out thinking, right, I'm going to control people in such a way that I'm going to manipulate them to a, in a bad way, that I'm going to stop them from doing what they want to do. But I think that everybody has their own idea of what right is and what's good and what is i suppose for want of a better word what is normal i think and and or what is what is truth as we look at in in the tenets of truth we I look at the idea of each person has their own idea what their their truth is so when you mix that with the billions of people that are in the world everybody's got a different idea of what that truth is so at some point, there becomes a need for that ruling elite or, or the, you know, the, the overarching control mechanism, the church or whichever religion or whichever way you want to describe it. They will feel that there are people who aren't acting within the constraints of their society or the constraints of their ideals. So they need to place those controls upon them to stop other people doing things that are outside the normal society and that's even in societal dogma so for you know it's never it's always based on good aspects or good ideas but there will be starts there will be points where unfortunately people start to manipulate it mm. um which is a really really hard way to see things i suppose <laughs> i'm a little sad now <laughs> <laughs> But then you look at you look at say we've got um, if we look at if we look at sci-fi, Orson Scott Card demonstrates it really well in uh, Xenocide, which you know part of the uh, Enderverse. So we've had End, we've had Ender's Game, then uh, Speaker for the Dead, and then we have Xenocide, and we see um, the God-spoken or inhabitants of Path, and they've been genetically adapted to produce super intelligence, but cleverly. The Starway Congress includes within the genetic modification a, a crippling form of obsessive compulsive disorder that manifests itself as a religious dogma. And it's all about con maintaining control and status quo and making sure that those people who have the super intelligence that could change all of that aren't able to because every time they start to start to kind of have a, an idea that's beyond the status quo, they're crippled with this really, really bizarre form of OCD. Uh, there's a, a, there's a, a, a character in there who, whenever she starts to think about something wrong, she has to punish herself mm. by tracing the grains of, of wood across a, a wooden floor in a hall. So, that's the way that it, it distracts her from doing anything that would actually change the status quo. But that said, I really like the way that, that Orson Scott Card actually deals with religion in uh, his books. Don't necessarily agree with everything that he, he believes in, but I think that a way that he tries to be really balanced and objective in how that he in how the characters, at least within his book, think about religion or think about dogma and control and actually try to reason things out. So they try they really try to put a um, a considered approach into how they then view the world on the back of the belief system. So I find that really interesting. I find that a really, you know, I would like the idea of that happening but I don't necessarily see that everybody's able to do that. Mm -hmm. So if we could have everybody who could do that, that would be fantastic. Yes. Um, but also within that, which is also an, an interesting part, is he uses it to question 
the idea of what religion means to the individual and how coming to terms with your own ideas can help you to understand others. But also, as I, as I seem to recall, the only way that they can save the world in the book is when Jane, who is a supercomputer, learns to give away control, even the control of herself and her own fate and trust her own being into the hands of others. So whilst we're also looking at a book that deals with dogma and the control of people through dogma, there's also a very bright ending where actually we can save society by trusting other people. Mm. So oh, so yeah, if we flipped it, maybe we found one there where we've been able to flip it a little and see that's actually a good impact or a good a good tale at the end of it to say this is what where we've got to. Yeah. That is a, it, when you talk about getting behind the scenes and like what what fuels fuels people's the characters' motivations and stuff like that. That's a good segue into the next question, which is all right, writers out there that want to be more aware of the dogma in their books or they want to fully lean into it. What are the fundamental factors that come with the territory? How like we talked about. Uh, rituals and ceremonies. Um, what are some? What are the, some things they should consider? Well, I think rituals are really the commonly used to enforce control, and they can be really simple. Ceremonies, masses, where you expect to be seen, are, are really key. So I think some of it is, you know, everybody has to be at the church every day or every week, and if you're not there, it's because you're obviously evil or you're dead. No, no two ways about it. If you don't sing loud enough or you forget the words or you don't make the right hand gesture at the right time, you're in league with the beast. Or if you do make a hand gesture, then you're also in the league with the beast. So it can be anything that you really want it to be. When you, when you really lean into it, you can make whatever you, when you're writing these things, you can make any kind of symbol to be something that is a positive symbol. And it can, as we said before, you make the right hand gesture in the church then it shows that you've listened to listened to the scriptures. You're, you've also paid attention at Sunday school. Uh, you've you've watched what the, the the altar boys do, that kind of thing. Or if you make the wrong signal at the wrong time, or the right hand gesture at the wrong time, similarly, it means you haven't paid attention. You're not obviously that devout, and it's a reason to start questioning you. So that's the brilliance about writing really is you can start to manipulate it and put anything anything that you want to as a spin as long as you give it some justification there always has to be a kind of cause and effect within it or there has to be some kind of reasoning out people don't just become evil just because they think right okay i'm now going to be evil this day in fact most people don't even consider themselves as being evil even when they're doing something evil they've justified what they're doing and that's what you have to do you have to kind of, you have to Place yourself in the position of the person that you're writing about and really daydream in, daydream from their point of view. And I think that's what it really is about. You, you have to kind of ideal, I have the idea of this person, I know what their belief structure is, I know what they think is right, what their, what their truth is, because you've, in, you've invented them. How would they then respond to these different types of acts? Why would they do that? How would they respond if somebody else did something? And then why would they do that? So, you know, as we said before, if somebody makes the, wrong hand, the right hand gesture at the wrong time, most people would just say, oh, it's just something that's happened. You know, they've made a mistake. But you can change it if you look at somebody else's point of view and think, well, actually, I need to get them out of the way because, you know, I, I want the wife. You know, I want to steal mm. the wife later on or I want the house. Oh, the, I want the, land the witchcraft there. accusations, right? like as an yeah, example of that exactly yeah that's exactly exactly right and we use that i use that in the, the tenets of truth quite what a, speaking quite of the tenets of truth talk to me about that like how much research did you put into real world dogmas when writing that book i suppose I, you know i guess i've not actively researched the topic in terms of sitting through and, and thinking right i'm gonna i want to write strongly about dogma but it, it's something that you see in a lot of books so I guess I've been passively researching it all my life. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I'm, I'm very much a daydreamer. So I often just imagine what things would be like at the most extreme points. You know, what would happen if there was no law and everything was still based on the Catholic Church during the medieval period? 
but there was no one that could add in, add in any checks and balances. I think that's a you know pretty standard normal daydream for anybody, I guess. Um, so that's and also I think I think you when you look at all kinds of different books, they are they are reflections of the period in which they are they are set. You know, we look at it might be set in a fictitious world, but there are very real current day themes. It's the same as the, the tenets of truth, and it's very much a social critique. But then most books are, when you look at Wiz oh, Wizard of Earthsea or The Midnight Robber or The Northern Lights, you can't help but see that the author has been looking around them at the time, seeing some of the things that they think they don't agree with or that they do agree with or you know their headspace at that time and they reflect it within the book that they're writing at the time you might take it to some extremes like philip Pullman does in northern lights or you might do it really suddenly like ursula uh, Guin does it in a wizard of Earthsea. you know when you consider that was when that was written and how subtle the the, the discussion of, of people of color is until the one very definite point where we have the most powerful wizard in the world turning up to take control of the most powerful wizarding school in the world and the the she describes him as as being really dark skinned it's fantastic because you, you consider that being written in 1964 some schools were only or some schools were still at that point segregating or, or only just repealing the segregation laws so it's it's so powerful you probably look at it now and say that's really subtle, but at the time it must have been a real smack to the jaw. Incredible. Yeah. Well, it seems like when you're challenging norms that are harmful, you're you're bound to make people happy or not happy, angry, right? Because you're challenging some things too. I think about, um, gosh, I remember when <laughs> I used to watch Xena Warrior Princess back in the '90s, and my dad yeah. is hyper traditional, hyper traditional, and he was so offended by the existence of Xena. Like he was always trying to like make fun of her and mock her. And I grew up fiercely feminist, probably because to, <laughs> to, to go get back at him, you know what I mean? Because of that, um, yeah. But it's like, yeah, uh, at the time there was a need for strong like women representation. And my, the older generation was just, Oh, how could what, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I feel like if you're, if you're angering the system, it's a good thing. Uh, because always, it's showing some progress. Always a good thing. If you're making people question something at some point, I'd hate to write a book where somebody is able to pick it up, read it all the way through to the end, and just go, that was nice. Thought that was okay. You know, you really want somebody to have a, some kind of visceral reaction to it at some point and either have to put it down for a, for a few hours and think, I, I can't deal with that one at the moment. It's either asked too many questions or it's caused a reaction in me that I, I, you know, I don't even want to see that the idea of that book in my head for a time. It's it's gauge it's get, it's garnering that reaction that you, you you make people question things that are happening around them. I hope to think anyway. Well, Quillen, we're coming up on our hour, so I want to say thank you first of all for joining us. This has been incredibly interesting. I'm fascinated by anything related to this kind of topic. But secondly, I want to give you a chance. Any final thoughts or anything that you want to share with us? Final thoughts are go and read a lot of books, uh, especially if people want to be writers. I know we'll have a lot of writers that, that are listening in at the moment. Um, myself, I have no formal training in, in writing. My idea was a, a few years ago was to just start writing and see what happens. I put it off for years and years and years and then realized one day, actually, if you don't try, then you never get anywhere. So I think that's one of the biggest points that I want to get across to people is you, you, you will never be a writer unless you write. Mm -hmm. I, I love that. You will be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you've got to keep writing. And even when you're not, even when you, you might think I'm stuck in a book, you know, you've got the, the dreaded block that people talk about then take a step back and write something else. Write a blog, write a short story, write a letter, write to a loved one, write to somebody that you've never seen for ages. In fact, write to a relative, a young relative, and write stories to them for a little while just to get you still in that zone of writing. I think it's really, really beneficial. 
most beneficial thing that you can do is just keep on writing. How can listeners find you and get your book? They can find me at www.quillammcbreen.com. Uh, that's you, you can find my, my book in pretty much most bookstores online, some rubbish bookstores too. And at, at my website is probably the quickest and easiest way. If you get directly in touch, then I'll get back to you and make sure you've got a brand new copy of my book. Might even sign it. Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com. Thank you.